If you were just born happy in the gender role that you're in, you don't give it too much thought. I'd look at the boys and always think, well, why wasn't I born like that? The clothes that they wore was what I wanted to wear. That's how I wanted to look. The things that they did, the way they spoke, everything. So you then start hiding it, try and get on with your life. And that's, I think, the most difficult thing really is dealing with it. But when a baby's born, what's the first thing you ask? Is it a boy or a girl? There's much more to it than that. There's the emotional side. And that's, from our point of view, what messes things up, makes life difficult and sets us on this journey. I'm Matt and I teach guitar. I'm Jake and I've been working as a gardener for 10 years. I grew up in Berkshire, so it's very home counties and men in suits um, going off to London to work in the city. In a way, I acted out a lot of my kind of male fantasies within nature. You know, I could be, you know, the Tarzan or the Batman or the Robin Hood. You know, I could play out all these male roles and heroes and nature wasn't turning around and saying, no, that's not OK. Getting periods, it was like the worst thing ever. It's like something I did not want to happen at all. I had a lot of fights and my mum was like, no, you got to wear bras and I did not want to wear them. I wanted to wear these kind of vest tops that kind of almost like tighten to hide the breasts. I went to the local kind of primary school, which was mixed. And I think that was probably about the first time that I noticed that I was having kind of sexual feelings or physical feelings towards girls. I think at the time I realised that probably wasn't okay those feelings but they were kind of secret feelings and then after that school I went did go to a mixed school it was a convent school and I did get into trouble in the end the nuns were not happy about me playing with the boys and I was actually banned from doing that <laughs> which I found that quite upsetting and then after about when I was about 13 I went to an all-girls school I think that's when it became more noticeable and more problematic for me it's not a choice you know, there's nothing you can do about it because at that age you're not old enough to understand. It's obviously something quite deep inside. And to me, the word six, or the age of six, just seemed like it was a boy's age. It couldn't be female. And I actually thought that I would wake up at the age of six and be a boy. I couldn't see how you could be six and not be a boy. And then as you get a little bit older, you realise that it's a bit of an odd thing, if you like. And so you then start hiding it and you don't want to be put down or criticised or branded a freak or something like that. So you just kind of hide it and try and get on with your life. And that's, I think, the most difficult thing really is dealing with it. We were going to formal events. I would have been expected to wear dresses. In fact, I had to wear dresses. And I utterly hated it. I mean, there's photographs of me with a grimace on my face, sort of scowling in a way. And I think the, the fights and the and for my parents to get me to do this were, were just kind of ridiculous. Wearing jeans and a T-shirt and looking quite androgynous, you um, walk into a, a lady's toilet and everybody stares at you. Or they'll sort of look about them, take a step and step back and look up at the ceiling as if like, am I in the right one? Looking for a sign. And it's like, there's no signs on the inside of toilets. <laughs> uh, you, that's That becomes a big worry. You don't like having to go into toilets. You'll be out for the day and be desperate and, you know, avoid it at all costs. That's quite a big one. Going through puberty as a trans person is really, really difficult. My mum couldn't understand why I couldn't cope 
with something that seemed quite normal. And so I ended up seeing a counsellor and eventually ended up at a gender clinic. But this was quite early on. So this was around 90, 89, 90, I think. Things weren't as easy back then. Socially, it wasn't as acceptable. The person I saw just made me feel really uncomfortable and I, I hated going. And then we missed an appointment. And so I just hid it and carried on life as normal, struggling. <laughs> I was about 25 and it just got to the point where and I just was having these really intense feelings, not telling anyone about it, holding it all in and not really living my truth. And it was just at home sort of dwelling on this sort of difficulty and decided that I wanted to do something about it. I went to this beautiful kind of hills that I know and love and say it's very much about my relationship with nature anyway, which is, it's my sort of safe place, it's a very nurturing place. And I did then tell somebody else first. And it, the relief to be able to just tell someone um, was just enormous. And it almost like it felt like I knew then that I could probably start to tell more people slowly. And at the same time, as much as there was that relief, there was also a huge amount of kind of fear of, oh my God, what's going to happen now? Well, I couldn't tell my parents. I absolutely couldn't bear to do that. <laughs> so I actually got my sister to do it. And she sort of often said, would you like me to do it? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> so I had orchestrated this grand plan. I'd written this letter to, the, to this girl that I was in love with to tell her, you know, my story really. And I think the way I wrote it was very much about, look, you know, you are, she was getting engaged to somebody else. But I need to tell you this, tell you this thing. I need to, you know, I really want you to hear it. And so I sent a letter, and I'd hoped that she would contact me. And so she was living in um, Somerset at the time. So I kind of went back down um, that weekend, hoping that I might be able to see her to talk about it. And so that was the weekend that my sister would tell my parents. And I would come home and like the prodigal child, and it'd all be fine. That was the kind of plan, <laughs> and I'd hopefully sorted it out with this woman. Well, it didn't work that way at all. I went to her house, and her friends just said, go away, she doesn't want to see you. It was anger and stay away, and that was the message I was getting after kind of long weekend of being in utter despair and I think even at one point quite suicidal but you know managed to kind of get some help not to do that. Turned up home very frayed not knowing what was going to happen um, very feeling very vulnerable and my parents were there waiting and they, they just sort of hugged me and I guess wanted me to tell them my story and what, what, it, what was it about, you know, what was going on, what was, what, what was all this, what were all these feelings, how long had I had, they had so many questions, you know, what was going to happen to me, what does this mean, you know, are you sure, what, you know, what, you know, my mum I don't think was completely convinced, I think she thought it might have been just a phase I was going through, because, you know, I was facing the world now as this sort of new, new person, this, this new opportunity to become a man, and that was my dream.
had any negative reactions whatsoever, which is obviously the biggest thing that I was scared of. So it's been amazing, really. The, the fear was to be branded a freak. And not only did that not happen, but the opposites happened. And I actually feel much closer to my friends and family. The connections are much stronger now, which is lovely. Knowing that there was a community or alternative community of, you know, gay, you know, you know, trans people. Initially, I went to Charing Cross. And I think I just turned up one day and went to the sex clinic. And I got an appointment to see a sex therapist. He was really helpful and listened and understood and made me feel safe and acceptable and in a way it was the first time or certainly first time a professional person was receiving what I was saying and accepting it um, and that for me was like a, a massive kind of step anyway and at the same time you know while this was all going on I was also finding out about trans groups and they put me onto a, a kind of trans um, phone line and I think that what the time was the FTM network for many trans people, the sort of sense of finally having a space where they can fit themselves and feel like themselves at that transition point is really important. Well, it was Steve and Whittle, and they were probably the only few people at the time that were offering this service in a way. We got the switchboard opened, and they could be anything from kids of 14, 15, you know, saying, I don't know how to do it, and I want to kill myself, through to, you know, people in their 60s who'd just seen this and realised that was possible for them. I'm Stephen Whittle. I'm a Professor of Equalities Law at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm a trans man. And that's, you know, me. <laughs> that initial sense of changing and you suddenly go from being somebody who's unhappy to becoming a transsexual person because you're under the care of doctors and things. And then you sort of have your treatment and you get past that stage. And in my case, I became, I suppose, a man. And then you think, but hold on a minute, that doesn't quite fit because I'm, I don't have the same life story background as my brothers. And I don't want to be thought to have that same background. And then you think, hold on, what does being a man actually say about you? And, you know, I always say to my to students who say, well, who are you really? And I say, well, you know, I can give you the one-sentence version or we could have the Encyclopedia Britannica version. There are many, many versions of the story. It was 1778 when Sarah and I started to live together. It was an incredibly difficult time through the 80s. I mean, we told hardly anybody, you know, I'd had my initial surgery, but, you know, everything else seemed impossible. Through the 80s, we kept this huge secret, and it was a massive secret, and a terrible imposition upon us as individuals, I mean, an incredible imposition upon Sarah. Her parents were against it. They didn't want anybody to know about her being with me. I didn't tell anybody. And I had jobs for every time somebody discovered somebody once recognised my mother, I lost my job, job the same day. It was just horrible. Which is why I think in 89, I felt it was really important that we moved forward and we sort of tried to create a sense of community. 
I'd been doing my law degree in the evenings and it was in 1991 when we tried to get fertility treatment for Sarah and the doctor was fine but he said he was referring it to his ethics committee who said no and I had that moment when I thought hold on a minute they have said that she will never be a good enough woman to be a mother because she fell in love with me. That is total, bloody illogical. And instead of sort of thinking that was how it was going to be, I have just got a law degree. I must be able to do something with this. And I went and got the actors, realised we had rights they didn't even realise we had, and we pushed on those. They fell back at the doors of the court, literally. And Sarah got pregnant on the first treatment. But it was like, hold on a minute, it is possible to fight back. We have very complex identities. I remember one of my um, students doing research with trans men and she came back and said, well, I've been categorising how they label themselves. And she said, each of them have at least nine or ten different ways of telling the story, depending upon who they're telling it to. If you start talking to people for long enough, you will see moments in their life where gender maybe hasn't been clear or they've been put in a place where they feel uncomfortable or they've been told, don't do that because you're a boy or don't do that because you're a girl. Uh, I'm Felix, I'm 25 and I'm a hairdresser. I don't think that when I was born there was any like innate sense of manness or womanness or anything else. I just had the genitals that I had and that's how they decide. This is like years ago, I phoned my mum and I was really upset and I was just saying to her over and over again on the phone like I've just got to go to the gym, like I've, I've got to go to join a gym because I just don't feel okay and I think if I just go and join a gym then I can change things and things will be okay. And my mum was like, are you sure that's what it is? But the best thing about that conversation is that there wasn't this oh my god reaction or there wasn't a kind of we need to do something about this, your father and I must intervene and step in and rescue you and fix everything. They just were like, what do you need? What do you need us to do? They made space for me to be whatever it was that I needed to be. Which I think, you know, people should do for other people. Both of them have been through enough things in their lives to realise that you should do what makes you happy and you should be open and kind and respectful to other people. At work, it's the responsibility of the male juniors to clean the air conditioning. I am saying things to try and change that and to say all juniors should clean the air conditioning because it's it's a perfectly easy job and it doesn't require a male body or a male brain, in air quotes, to, to do this. And just getting people to think about it. Or if I encounter somebody who says, oh, but men are just like this, or oh, but women are just like that. I always go, but are they? Like, how do you know that? Have you met 
all the women in the world or all the men in the world? Or how do you know that the person you're talking to is a man or a woman? Like, what are you doing to identify that person? So much of that is surface in lots of ways. Yeah, well, I've moved back home with my parents, so yeah, we, we, we kind of get on okay. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Um, there's a lot of unsaid stuff that still goes on. So yeah, there's course that sits there and it's hard and sometimes I don't feel that connected. I know that they felt guilty I, and I've always, I always try and sort of tell them that it's not their responsibility or their fault. But at the same time, my other voice is like, I feel very angry about what happened and, you know, and I've been, been honest with them about that as well. So I think they take that on board as thinking that I'm being angry with them. Because I mean, the one thing about them that, you know, I do know is that then they have always tried to be good parents. I think it was, it was a struggle for them to come to terms with their feelings around it. Because people are so focused on this idea that there are men and there are women, what they want to see is this transformation or this the one to the other, because that confirms for them what they think to be true. I don't see it as being there being a fixed beginning and end to transition for me. I don't think that there will come a day when I'll have had all the operations and all the medical interventions and then I'll be done and then I'll just be a man and then everything will be okay. That's not me at all. There's so many cultures that aren't Western that acknowledge and support and validate and love non-binary identities. Human beings are so varied and fluid and fragile and infinite. Like it's not possible to distill it down to say, my body will represent me and my ideas for the rest of my life as it is. I do definitely feel that I'm doing things that maybe I didn't have the opportunity to do as a teenager. So it's kind of allowing my male identity to be fully expressed. And we just get these things forced on us, don't we? The differences between male and female. I can now be myself, which is very uplifting, really. <laughs> every human being is experiencing gender in a different way from every other human being. And I think that understanding that, but on a wider, bigger way, and not teaching children that this is what boys do and this is what girls do, is so, so, so damaging. We're told, every day from every available outlet that you're a man or you're a woman. If perception is going to change, you have to talk about it all the time and every day and live your life in a way that makes it visible. It's difficult to find moments to fight against that, but people can start taking that time. Mm -hmm.